Good morning, everybody. It is really good to be with everyone this morning. Uh, such a blessing to be here once again at the Thorntons' house. We're so grateful for them and uh, their friendship to us as a church, their invitation to be here year after year. We're so thankful for that. And uh, as Doug mentioned, this is the 18th time we've done this, which is amazing. Uh, 19th, if you count the year that we did this totally remotely, but 18th here in this place. A big thank you also this morning to those who were here really, really early setting up, our setup people and our tech crew and the worship team. Thank you so much to all of them and to Doug, who does all things logistics and does them so well. So very grateful. Uh, we want to give a shout out this morning to our brothers and sisters in Mozambique as well. So they had their worship services this morning, and I know some of them are with us online uh, for this service as well. So bom dia to our friends in Mozambique. And also a shout out to our most recent church plant is here in the States. It's in Orange County, but it's a Brazilian church plant. And so a bom dia to them as well. Uh, but we're just really thankful for them. And, uh, and a second Brazilian church is, is in the works too. So uh, Lord willing, that will be our, uh, our next church plant after this one. Uh, our vision, some of you know this, but our vision from the beginning, our prayer, our dream, uh, we've prayed that if God was going to bless us with growth, that we would want to see that happen uh, through planting more churches. Uh, we've never been particularly interested in becoming a bigger and bigger church, but we've prayed that God would allow us to multiply and plant more churches. And we started the church with this crazy prayer that God would allow us to plant a thousand churches around the world by, by the time all was said and done. And amazingly, he's been so faithful in that. We're at uh, well over 300 now, and God has just been so good. And so we're, uh, we're so grateful. The bulk of that in Mozambique, where, um, where I get to be in a few weeks, actually, get to do some training with our pastors down there. So very stoked on that. Uh, finally, I just want to say thank you to all of you for being such a faithful church. Uh, it is really an amazing thing to be able to be part of a family of faith, a community of believers who support each other in walking with Jesus in the midst of this world and being a blessing. And uh, those of you who have been doing this, you know this is not for the faint of heart. Uh, there are pressures that pull at us from the right and from the left, and uh, the, the discipline of being a person who walks with Jesus is a grace. And it's something that can only be sustained as we do so with each other. And uh, you are a wonderful church to be a part of and to serve. So I just thank you. So give yourselves a hand if that's not too awkward. And I, uh, I just thank you. I really do. Well, let me pray for us. And let's look at the scriptures together. Father, we are indeed so grateful to be here today. We are so grateful that you have called us to be your children. We're thankful for the cross and what it means, and we're thankful for the empty tomb and what it means. And as we gather to worship this day, we pray, God, that our hearts will be directed towards you. We pray that you would give us an openness, that whatever word you are speaking to us today, that we would be able to receive that, that that word would find good soil in our hearts and that it would grow up and bear fruit. Uh, for each of us, God, wherever we are at with you, uh, whether we are exploring the faith or have been Christians for many years, we pray, God, that you would move in our hearts today 
and that you would move us closer to Jesus. We ask you for this. We trust you for this. In Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, uh, one of the things that I've found, and maybe you've seen this too, is that with, uh, with myself, with fellow Christians, it seems that most Christians know what the cross means. And even many who aren't part of the Christian faith know what the cross means. It's somewhat intuitive, right? And if you know the Christian story very well at all, you know it's the story of a God who loves us, who created us for good and created us for relationship with himself. But our sin, our own rebellion, separates us from God. And the scriptures from the very beginning are this long story of how God is going about this process of bringing people back to himself. And the cross is really the high point of that story. Where Jesus comes, God's son, he comes as one who is sinless and he dies in our place on the cross. A sacrifice, if you will, for the sins of the world. And he invites all of us who would to place our trust in him and to have our sins forgiven because of what he would do. Now, that's the cross. And again, I would say that for many folks, this is intuitive. We hear the story, and whether you agree with the story or not, it makes sense. But the empty tomb, Easter Sunday, the resurrection, I find sometimes this is a little more difficult part of the story for us to make sense of. Uh, we, we maybe sort of wonder, so what does this add? If Christ saved us on the cross, what does the resurrection add to this story? And how do we go about living into that aspect of the story as well? Uh, The New Testament actually talks about this a lot. In fact, arguably, it talks about the resurrection of Christ more than it does the cross of Christ. It's actually a, a critical part of the salvation story and of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to spend some time on that this morning as we look at this passage that Christina just read and just ask this question, what is the significance of the resurrection? What does it mean and how do we live into that? And there's three aspects in particular we'll look at today, three promises that come with the empty tomb, and we see them throughout the New Testament, but we see them really illustrated in the story of Easter morning as well. The first one of those is this. It's the promise that death doesn't get the last word. Death does not get the last word. Again, looking at John 20, starting in verse 3, it says this. It says, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, that's John, who's writing this, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. Now, in the days which followed this account, The disciples and many others would have encounters with Jesus where they would talk with him and they would touch him. And and there there was this move from doubt into faith, doubt into really knowing as they came in contact with Jesus. But when we're talking about these first moments at the empty tomb, the dominant emotion there was confusion. What is it that is going on in this moment? And the disciples, Peter and John, they get there, they go into the tomb and they're, they're just bewildered. 
right? Where Jesus' body had been laid, there's now just empty linens, this sort of empty cocoon. And John notes here that, that he was the first one to sort of get it, the first one for whom it clicks. It says he saw all this and he believed. And I'd ask this, he believed what? What happened in him at that moment? And this gets explained elsewhere as we get into the scriptures, and particularly Romans 1, Paul talks about this. That what the resurrection did, seeing that empty tomb, it vindicated Jesus and what he had been doing and what he had been saying, the message he was proclaiming. By the resurrection, they knew that he was not only a man who had been crucified, but in the resurrection, they saw that he was indeed who he had been saying he was, the Son of God sent into the world to take the sins of the world upon himself, which he did on the cross. And in rising from the dead, it validates those claims. And it, it shows that part of that claim, this claim that eternal life was available through him, that he was the one living that out first. That death no longer had the final word. There's another word that comes after death, and that word is life. That that is no longer the end. And this, this image of, of the empty tomb that we see here in John chapter 20, uh, this was actually, if you can believe it, the dominant image of the Christian faith for the first few centuries of Christianity. Uh, for us, it's the cross, right? Uh, there's a lot of us this morning that are wearing a necklace around our neck with a cross, or some who have a tattoo of a cross. In the first three to four centuries of the church, if they were doing this thing, you would wear a necklace with an empty tomb, or you'd get a tattoo of, an, of a tomb with a stone rolled away. It had this much importance in Christian thought. Because if Jesus stayed dead, then death is all there is, and there's nothing more to the story. But because Jesus rose from the dead, death no longer has the last word. There's another word after that. And that word is life. Now for you and I, the New Testament talks about this too. What does this mean for us? It means what it means for Jesus. But we're told in the scriptures that the resurrection of Jesus becomes our resurrection as well if we have put our faith in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6 puts it this way. I put this one in your bulletin if you want to see it. But Paul says this simply. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. And there are many others that would follow, all who put their trust in him. The book of Hebrews adds this. It says, Jesus frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The fear of death. And you know, no matter what advances we experience in medicine and in technology and vaccinations and our comfort, in the end... Death still wins. It always has the last word. We've been maybe more conscious of this during these years of COVID than we are in normal times. Uh, but, you know, whether it's disease or whether it's old age, whether it's an accident, the death rate is always still 100%. All of us eventually come to that end. And if that is the last word, that is tragedy indeed. But Jesus tells us it is not. And the empty tomb tells us there is another word after that. Uh, I've 
I've been a pastor now for a, a good long time. I want to say 28 years. I'll do the math later, see if that's right. But it's been a minute. Uh, in that time, I have presided over so many funerals. I've presided, uh, not presided, but I've, I've sat at the bedside of so many people who were about to die, uh, sometimes with them in that moment of death, sometimes arriving there and just being present right afterwards. But I, I can tell you something, and, and I just offer this as my story, and, and I just want to testify to this reality, that there is a remarkable difference in that time of death and in even how we remember that person in death between a person who knows Christ and a person who does not. Uh, there is, in, in the lives of Christians who die, and especially those who have, have really walked with them, those who have really kind of lived their faith, there is a peace, there is a joy, even in passing. There is, there is a, I don't know how else to put it, but there is sometimes an almost tangible experience of the presence of God in that moment. You feel like you can almost touch the presence of the holy in the room. And I know some hear this and, and some have heard me share this and they kind of scoff at it and say, well, you know, the power of suggestion is really powerful, right? If you believe something enough, then it can have a, a profound effect on you, whether that thing is true or not. And I, I know that. You know, I've experienced that too. The power of suggestion is powerful. And you know, I, I have a degree in psychology. I know this is a reality. Uh, but this is my testimony. I'm talking about something different. There is a power when a believer in Christ moves on to death because death no longer has the last word. The resurrection tells us that. Uh, I remember uh, my brother's death. Uh, my brother died by suicide at age 19. I was uh, 22, I think, at the time, 23. Uh, I remember the day of his funeral. Uh, it was one of those moments where God was just so powerfully present and in a way that was almost indescribable. And, uh, and that night, I, I, uh, I stayed at my parents' house that night, stayed with them, and um, about 9 p.m., there was a knock at the door. And it was the father of my brother's best friend. And he was, uh, he was a highly educated man, very respected in the community, and very well-known and outspoken as an atheist. And he had been at the funeral that day, and he was at our door that night. And, uh, and he knocked on the door, and he said, I don't know how else to put this other than to say I experienced something today at that funeral I've never experienced before. And I need you to help me understand what that was. Can I come in and talk to you for a bit? And uh, we spent the next three hours, my parents and I, sitting with them and talking about God and God's presence in my late brother's life and in our lives. <sighs> At the empty tomb, friends, we are reminded that death does not have the last word. It is an enemy still, but it's an enemy that has been conquered. And as Jesus has defeated death, it cannot defeat you and I. If we are in Christ, if our trust is in him, if he has come into our lives, forgiven our sins, and given us that life, then we too become undefeatable. Uh, that's the first thing. That's the first, first message, the first promise that we see 
as we come to the empty tomb and what it means. Uh, the second one is this. The second is the promise of being fully known, yet fully loved. Catch both parts of that. The promise of being fully known, yet fully loved. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize yet that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And then hear this part. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. This one word changed everything for her. And I've, I've heard it said, I don't know where the saying comes from, but I've heard it said uh, that the most wonderful sound in the world is the sound of your own name in the mouth of a loved one. And that was Mary's experience in that moment. It's one of the most poignant scenes in Scripture of her just broken and weeping and desperate. And Jesus identifies himself to her with a single word, her name, Mary. It's so tender. It takes me to another word from the New Testament that speaks about the resurrection, and it hones in on, on this particular aspect too. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Right? This is part of what the resurrection means. Part of what the new life means. It means being fully known. Known by the others who will share eternity with us and known by God and known fully. Friends, not only does Easter mean that death does not get the final word, but it means that you and I are going to be fully, entirely known. Now, sit with that for a second. Because I think if you really think about it, there's a good chance that you will find that to be both good news and maybe bad news, right? There's, there's an aspect of that that is so appealing because there is a part of you, there's a part of me that wants nothing more than to be absolutely fully known, to stop pretending, to take off our masks, to lay down pretense, to lay down the carefully constructed images that we like to show to the world right? Our Instagram selves, that part of us that just looks wonderful and airbrushed and everything is great. We want to lay that down. We want to be known and we, we want to be loved for who we are. In fact, and maybe you can relate to this, in fact, the better we have crafted this whole idea of putting forward this false self that others see, the less loved we feel. Because we're always in a state of wondering, do people love me for who I am or love the me that I've created for them to see? In the resurrection, we will be fully known and we'll be fully loved. And that second part is so important too. Because the reason that we construct an image in the first place is this fear that if we are fully known, that we will not be fully loved. 
This fear that if people saw me as I truly am, that I might be rejected, that I might not be enough, that I might not receive love. And man, if, if in your lifetime, you have one or two relationships where you feel you can fully entirely be yourself and still be loved, that is a huge blessing. And one of the things that the New Testament says about the resurrection, and we see a picture of it here in this interaction with Mary at the tomb, is that God fully knows you. And in spite of fully knowing you, he absolutely, entirely, completely loves you. Through Jesus, you can be fully known and you will be fully loved. And that's Mary in this moment, right? This tender scene of locking eyes with Jesus and hearing her name. And in this moment, she knows that he knows and that she is loved. And we, we don't know a lot about Mary. The scripture gives us just a few things, but I mean, we can say with certainty she had a rough life prior to meeting Jesus. All that is known, and she is, in fact, loved. And friends, listen, I want you to know that that is true of you this morning too. That God sees you as you really are. He knows what makes you laugh. He knows what your hopes are. He knows what you're proudest of. And he also knows your greatest regrets and your biggest areas of shame and your faults that you try desperately to keep hidden. And he loves you. God looks at you, and he knows your name, and he knows who you are, and he loves you. Uh, think of it this way, if you will. Uh, God is, is portraying the scriptures as a father who has no fault himself, who loves us perfectly, who delights in his children. Friend, God does not just tolerate you in all your mess. He delights in you. It's almost as if the scripture reaches for different forms of language to express this, right? Uh, the, the relationship between us and God is at times described as a marriage, right? It's compared to uh, romantic love. And uh, God gives us this image and says, if you can imagine the way that, that a, a man looks at his spouse on his wedding day, that's the way that God looks at you. Other times it's portrayed as a parent-child relationship, God's saying, if you can imagine a father who has no fault, a father who has no temper, a father who doesn't reject, if you can imagine this, that is how God looks at you as his child. At times the language is of two friends who have shared life deeply together and can look at each other and say, I love you. Friends, God knows you, everything, and he loves you in that way and more. I had a friend in college, he's one of the most gifted musicians I've ever known, uh, had just such a, a beautiful future ahead of him, uh, but he kept falling into patterns of drug abuse. Uh, and it, for him, it stemmed to his childhood. He had a father who abandoned him when he was young. He grew up hearing messages his whole life of how worthless he was, and, and drugs were his way to deal with that pain. And try as he would to get free of this, he would fall back into it every couple few years. Uh, he was right on the brink of a career in music, and he lost that because of his addictions. 
Uh, he wanted at one time to get into ministry, into music ministry in the church. Lost that because of addictions. Uh, he got married, fell in love with a great young woman. They had four kids together. He lost his family because of his addiction. I remember years ago uh, driving down to San Diego to sit with him in a Denny's and just say, man, what, what happened? You know, and his family had up and moved across the country so they didn't want to see him again, period. Uh, just a couple of years ago, he and I were able to reconnect. And uh, he'd been clean and sober for many years. And man, he looked great. Looked like a whole new person. Uh, had remarried, had a couple of children. He was a great father. He was the worship pastor for his church. And, uh, and I was like, man, what happened? What made the difference? What helped you finally break free from it all? And he said, you know what? It was this. I finally came to a place where I believed that God loved me for who I was. Where I was able to believe that God knew everything about me and he still loved me. And he said that was the turning point. He says it, it was still tough, but that's the moment when everything changed. And I was able to begin to live into the life that I'm living now. And friends, I'd ask you, is this something that you can receive? Can you believe that there is a God who knows you absolutely, yet fully loves you? The empty tomb reminds us of this, because in the resurrection, we are fully known. Uh, there's one more that I, I want to give you here this morning. One more promise that comes with the empty tomb, and this is the promise of truly knowing God, right? There's a promise here that death will not have the last word. There's a promise of God knowing us and loving us, but there's a promise too of us truly knowing God. Verse 16, it says, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Uh, the resurrected Jesus knew Mary, just as she knew him as well. And people sometimes ask me, well, I know my loved ones in heaven. And I tell them, absolutely. You absolutely will know them. And the resurrection points us to that too, that uh, we don't become someone different. We become more and more ourselves, and we will be fully known. And Mary, she knows Jesus in this moment. And I love this little exclamation that she makes right? Calling him Rabboni. Now, it says here that, that uh, this means teacher, but the proper term that she would have used normally to call him teacher was rabbi. Rabboni is like a, a diminutive. It's, it's an affectionate way of saying that. So like in, in English, if we see a duck and we want to communicate, that's a really cute and lovable duck. We say, oh, it's a duckling, right? Uh, or um, you know, this is an inanimate one, but if, if there's a little tiny cute kitchen, it's no longer a kitchen, it's a kitchenette, right? It's the, it's the little cute version, right? If you're a Spanish speaker, right, a burrito is a cuter, more lovable version of a burro that <laughs> is also really, really tasty. Uh, that's what Mary is doing here. Mary is, is using that sort of a wordplay, Rabboni, calling Jesus a a cute little rabbi, in essence. <laughs> There's an affection there that's, that's such a precious part of this story. 
Jesus has died and he's now alive and Mary can still know him and know him well, know him in a way that's intensely personal. Uh, Jesus taught his followers to call on God in a very similar way. Uh, it was very unusual in first century Judaism to refer to God as Father. But Jesus, when teaching his disciples to pray, says, when you pray, call God Father. And the word there is the word Abba. And it's also a very affectionate word. It's probably best translated Daddy. He's saying, you are able to know God in a way that is highly personal, in a way that is highly affectionate. That love that God has for you as he looks at you, he sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. So you can have that kind of love, that kind of knowledge of God too. You can truly know him. The resurrection reminds us of this, friends. Uh, Brennan Manning, uh, a Catholic priest who I've learned a lot from through the years, uh, he has a beautiful story to this effect. He talks about a time when he was called by a young woman that he knew to come and to visit her father who was dying. <coughs> her father was home and uh, he was bound to his bed and he was passing away. And she called him specifically because she was worried about him, not just dying, but she said, I, I think he's beginning to lose it. I'll go into his room, and he's, he's pulled this chair up next to his bed. And I come in, and I find him talking to himself, looking at this chair. I think he's cracking up. And she says, as soon as I, I go into the room, he stops talking, and he denies that he ever was talking. So she says to Brennan Man, will you go and talk to him? And he says, okay. So he goes, and he sits with this man, this girl's father, and asks him how he's doing, and as they're talking, he says, you know, your daughter told me about the chair and she's worried about you because you're talking to a chair. What's going on? And the man reluctantly says, well, this friend of mine came by and he said, you're dying. You should probably think about praying more. And I figured my friend was right. So I asked him, how do I pray? I've never really done it. And he said, it's not that hard. So this is what I want you to do. You need to remember that God is like a really good father and that he's present. He's right there with you all the time. And just talk to him like he's in the room. Talk to him like he's your father and he's right there. And the man says, okay. And he starts trying this, but it wasn't really working for him. He couldn't picture it. So he, he pulled up a chair and he pictured God, his father, sitting in the chair. And he would pray by talking to the chair. And, and of course, until his daughter came in and then everything would, would uh, suddenly grind to a halt. And the man says to Brennan Manning, am I crazy? Should I not be doing this? And Brennan says, no, no, no. That's actually a really great way to pray. God is your father, and he is right here. You keep picturing him in the chair, and you keep talking to him in the chair. Well, Manning left, and some days later, the daughter called and, and said, could you come over? My dad has passed away. And he does, and he's sitting with the daughter, and he says, how was it? How were his final days? And she said they were good. They were really peaceful. He seemed more at peace than he ever was during his life, actually. And Brennan says, good. She says, there is one thing, though. 
said, I, I couldn't understand this. In the end, he was so weak, he could barely sit up in bed. But somehow, he managed to pull himself up, and at the moment of death, he leaned over and he laid his head on that chair next to his bed. Friends, the Father, ah, how he loves you. He knows you as you are, and he loves you as you are. And he wants to know you in that way, in the tender way of a father and a child. He wants you to talk to him like that. He wants you to lean on him like that. Friends, the resurrection invites us into this. We don't worship a God who is dead. He is alive and he is present and he is active in our lives. Do you want that? Do you want to know God in that way? As we respond in worship this morning, I, I want to invite you to a couple of particular responses. And I ask you, really think about this this morning. As you are talking with God this morning, really think about this. And really, I think when it comes down to it, there's, there's kind of three kinds of people. You'll probably find yourself in one of these categories. Uh, but for some here today, it's, it's those who would say they have no relationship with God. They've never come to a point of inviting Jesus into their lives. And I want to invite you, if that is you, would you this morning take a step of faith and pray to God like he is your father and ask him to invade your life, to fill you up with his spirit, to forgive your sins, to give you this eternal life that Jesus died and he rose from the dead for. As we worship this morning, I just want to invite you to do that, to invite him in. He will come. Uh, second kind of person that's here this morning is there's those of us who maybe somewhere in the rearview mirror we made a commitment to God. Maybe at some point we would have identified as a Christian and maybe now you're not exactly sure where you are. If that is you, I want to invite you this morning in a fresh way to put your faith in Christ, to reach out to him, to pray and ask him to invade your life in a beautiful way to fill you with his love, and to give you the strength of his spirit to walk with him, to live for him. And then there's those who maybe have been walking with God for a long time. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this Easter service, this experience is a familiar one for you. It happens every week, and you've been walking with God forever, it seems. Well, I, I would invite you to ask God this morning is. Is there any barrier in my life that's keeping me from that sort of intimacy with you? Are there any steps that I need to take to grow more deeply in you? Ask God that. And as he reveals to you, say yes to what he would call you to. Uh, as we pray and as we sing and as in a few minutes we receive communion, I want to invite you just to be praying this whole time and asking God to work in you in these ways. Will you do that? Let's pray together.